into when you saw that video is a series called The Invitation. That's based on a verse in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 where Jesus says, if anyone, so everybody's invited, if anyone wants to come follow me, and we've been looking at Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, and talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Next week is going to be the last message in this series, and we're going to take a break from the book of Mark, do a special Christmas series. You're invited. I hope you come next week. We're going to do communion next week. It'll be the last message in this series. And then the week after that, we're going to start our Christmas series that we're doing called World Changers. And we're going to have a Christmas Eve service. There's going to be three services. Times are going to be coming out. Tickets are going to be available. And uh, you're all invited, by the way. So it's the series isn't called You're Invited, but you're invited. And so we'd love to have you. Invite your friends, bring your family members. We're going to have three different services right here. It's on a Saturday, and we will cancel church on Sunday. We won't be here that Sunday if you want to come. And uh, if you're hanging out and you see some trash in the parking lot from the day before, we'd love it if you pick that up. But we will not be here. Um, but you are invited to our Christmas Eve services. Times and tickets will be coming out uh, probably next week or the week after. And so I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump back into the series. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. Let me pray. Father, thank you you, that we can gather together as a church family, and there's all these different things happening. Some people are sick, there's difficulties happening, some marriages hanging on by a string, and then just as our worship leader was telling us, none of us are perfect in this stuff, and uh, we mess up in how we respond in some of these things, but we are thankful that you, you make your grace known in those moments, and uh, some of us here today probably needed a reminder because we become arrogant that we're not perfect, and some of us here probably that's the last thing we wanted to hear because we know how bad we mess up. But Father, I pray that you would point us to you and all of it. And I pray as we open up your scriptures today that you'd speak to our hearts and that you'd fill us up. And I pray that no one who is here today will leave here the same. I pray that those of us who know your son Jesus would leave more like your son Jesus than when we walked in those doors when we got out of our car. And those of us who don't know your son Jesus, I pray that they would today, that they would come to know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Like I mentioned, we're going through Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10 in this series really talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And you've heard me say the statement over and over again, there's no such thing as a follower who doesn't actually follow. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus gives that invitation. If anyone wants to come follow me, then he talks about what it looks like. And then he unpacks in specific situations. Last week we talked about what it looks like with our money. We talked about what it looks like with sin. We talked about what it looks like in our marriages. We talked about what it looks like in these different areas. But there's only so much space in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And it's interesting that this week's passage that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, going through verse 45, is really parallel to one we've already looked at, which is in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And the topic is the same in both of them. In both situations, Jesus has just pronounced, just said that he's going to die, what his death is going to be like. And this one we're going to look at today gives more details than any other one. And then there's this topic of greatness that comes up. And so as I was preparing this week, I went back and looked at, since it was just recently, several weeks ago, that we were in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and I thought, I don't want to say the exact same things to the, to the church again, not that we couldn't use the repetition, but I thought, I'm going to go back and see what I said, and how did I get started talking about greatness? And some of you may remember, uh, the day that we talked about greatness in Mark chapter 9, I told you there are all kinds of lists about who's the greatest, who's the greatest poet, who's the greatest soccer player, who's the greatest basketball player, who's the greatest whatever, greatest songs, greatest movies, and I made the mistake when I mentioned the greatest movies of telling you there were a few movies that are on many of your lists of the greatest movies that I had never seen. I'd never seen E.T. at that point. I'd watched E.T. recently. I had never seen, and I, when I told this one, this was the big mistake. I said that I had never seen the movie The Princess Bride. When I said that, some funny guy said, and I believe it was in this service, yelled out, Inconceivable! You know who you are if you're the one that, that said that. And if those of you don't know why he said that, I've seen the movie since. I've now seen it one and a half times. 
And there's a guy in the movie, he's one of the main characters at the very beginning, his name is Vizzini. And he kidnaps a princess, he's got two sidekicks, Andre the Giant, for those of you WWF fans back in the day. All right, I was with, I'm with you, I was with him. I know that's acting, but anyway. And then there was another guy, uh, Inigo Montoya, is that how you say his name, is that right? Now, if you got it, you got it. Inigo Montoya, they're in a boat together, they just kidnapped a princess. Vizzini says to Mon- Inigo Montoya, why do you keep looking backwards? He says, in case somebody's following us. Inconceivable that someone would be following us. And he says it again to him. In the next scene, they're climbing up a rope. Well, Andre the Giant's climbing up a rope. He's got a Nigo Montoya connected to him. He's got Vizzini on him. He's got the princess on him. He's climbing up this rope. And there's a hero that was chasing them. His name's Wesley. We find out later he's coming up this rope. And Vizzini sees that. And he says, he's climbing up the rope and he's catching us. Inconceivable. He's clutching him. He's climbing up the rope. They get to the top. Andre the Giant and his two buddies and Vizzini get up there. Or, uh, the princess and the two guys get up there. And Vizzini goes over and he cuts the rope. Rope goes over the edge, you figure the bad guy, or the hero, eventually you find out, has fallen off, but he grabs a hold of this cliff, and he starts climbing up, and Vizzini comes over to the side again, he says, inconceivable! And then Inigo Montoya, one of his buddies, looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I do not think that word means what you think that word means. (laughs) Inconceivable means unbelievable, but he's seeing these things happen. And I thought, how ironic that we started that sermon talking about that movie, and then as I see the movie now, now that I've watched it since then, I watched it this week, it's like, how ironic that is, because we're talking about greatness, and I do not think that word means what you think it means. (laughs) In fact, if we look at God's definition of what greatness is, I bet it's different than what 98% of us, when we walked into this room, were thinking when we thought about greatness. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. But what Jesus does, he redefines greatness. My hope for you today is that you would leave here today with a different definition of greatness, but my hope goes beyond that. Because we can do that. I can give you a definition of greatness. You can memorize your smart people. You can memorize a different definition of greatness. My hope is the Holy Spirit will do a work in your hearts and change your desires. Because I can't change your desires. You can't just change your own desires. You want what you want. And so I hope the Holy Spirit will do a work in your heart to give you a desire to not only know what this definition of greatness is, but to want to pursue it, to go after it. Because I believe that God's put a desire for greatness in each one of us. None of you, when you you had a kid, none of you moms thought to yourself, I sure hope I'm a mediocre mom. And when you became a doctor, or you became a teacher, or you became a police officer, or you became whatever it is that your job is, software engineer, project manager, accountant, whatever it is that you do. Things may have changed today up to this point, but when you started, you didn't think, I want to be an average doctor. I want to be the most mediocre police officer I can. No, you wanted to make a difference. And God's placed that in us, and the desire for greatness is fine. We talked about that in chapter 9. But what we see in chapter 10, we see some new things. And so will you look at it with me? Mark chapter 10, we're going to start reading in verse 32, as we talk about an almost inconceivable greatness. Mark chapter 10, starting verse 32. And the parallels with Mark chapter 9 is, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus has just told them, they just failed, they just failed to cast out a demon, and he tells them about his death, and then all 12 of them start to argue about who's the greatest. In this passage, he gives a more detailed description of his death. More detailed than he's ever given up till this point. And then it's not all 12 of them, but there's two of them. Oftentimes, you see when Jesus calls out some disciples, it's Peter, James, and John. When they go to the transfiguration, it's Peter, James, and John. When they're at Jairus' house and Jairus' daughter is sick and he says, hey, only a couple of you can come with me. It's Peter, James, and John. But here's just James and Don. John, they've ditched Peter. They're done with Peter. Look what happens. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. That's all 12 of them at this point. Well, those who followed were afraid. And so there's people in addition to the 12 that are following. Some of them are afraid. 
Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And he gives this description of his death. And the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. We've heard that before. And then he gives some more information. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. We haven't heard that before. Now, those of us who are familiar with the gospel, we know that Jews can't kill him. They want him crucified, but they bring him to Pilate because they don't have the authority to kill him. So the Gentiles get involved. Jesus knew this ahead of time. Verse 34, they'll mock him. They'll spit on him. So Jesus even knew that he was going to be spit upon. They'll flog him. Have you seen the passion of the Christ? Jesus knew this was going to happen. And they will murder him. And then he says, and three days later, it doesn't get much more specific than that, three days later he will rise. Amen? And then it's like they didn't even hear any of that. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You ever prayed like that before? What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can't, they answered, showing they don't get it. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they've been prepared. They don't even know what they're asking. And so here we have Jesus. He gives the most detailed description of his death that's been given in the Gospels up to this point. He shows that he, it's not an accident what happens to Jesus. It wasn't like he came to be a good teacher and they killed him. It wasn't that he came to be a good example and they killed him. It wasn't that he came to die. And we're going to go all the way through verse 45 in this passage today, and he's going to talk about that. He came to give his life as a ransom. That was the plan. He gives the detailed description. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from dead three days later. It's like they don't even get it. And these two disciples go, hey, but will you do whatever we want? We want to be great. We want to sit. One of us, we don't even want to be number one, Jesus. You're number one. But I want to be number two, and my brother's going to be number, th- number three. Can we sit at your right? Can we sit at your left? We want to be great. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't get it. And then he starts to tell us, and we don't see all of it here. We'll see some of it. We'll get into some parallel passages to Mark chapter 9 when he talks about you've got to be last and you've got to serve. And he talks about giving his own life. But he begins to define for us greatness here. And, and the first thing he tells, about, tells us about greatness, I want to say this, especially those of you who are guests. This is the kind of thing you say to get the seats filled up at your church. What I'm about to tell you is not what itching ears want to hear. This is, you're thinking, yeah, I want to be great. I want to be great. What is he going to say? You're not going to like what I'm about to say. Because greatness requires suffering. And that's our first point. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the cup and the baptism. You don't even know what you're at. When you ask to be great, do you even realize what you're asking for? You're asking for suffering. The cup, the baptism. Do you, do you get it? Because greatness requires suffering. And we see this here. You can say, well, that just applied to James. And it just applied to John in the situation. We know that James is going to be the first of the 12 disciples that are martyred in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We see that. John never gets martyred, but has incredible persecution in his life. We don't have a Bible verse on that, but history and tradition has told us about how he ends up dying of old age in his 90s. But it's still, there's a lot of suffering. And it wasn't just for them. Because we read throughout the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. If anyone, there it is again, If anyone wants to live a godly life, they will suffer persecution. We know in this world there is trouble. It's a guarantee. It's a promise from Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 33. That we experience suffering of all different kinds. We see a theme throughout the scriptures. There's always a a cross before a crown. There's death before resurrection. There's suffering before there's glory. And we don't like to hear that. 
I saw a quote recently that made me think of this, and it was in a different message on a different, I was reading somebody else's message on a passage that was about counting the cost, and John Stott is the one who says it. And he's talking about the cost of Christianity. And Stott says what many of us think about with Christianity. He says, in, in countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved. I mean, I serve and I do... Enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable to require faith. The religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. We craft it into our own mold. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and to dismiss religion as escapism because the world can look at us and see, you want the same stuff I want. You're the same as I am. You're just using Jesus to get there. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. And what Jesus is leading them to, he's leading them to greatness. He's leading them to what they desire in their own hearts. He's leading them to what God intended for them to have. But did you see, when you go back up to verse 32 and 33, it's scary. It's exciting for some. Some were astonished. The 12 were astonished. Some were afraid. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. We know that Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's about to predict it in verses 34 and 35. And he talks about his death. He talks about the details. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 tells us he set his face towards Jerusalem. From now on, we see Jesus, he's on a laser focus to get to the cross. But the rest of them, they don't know. And what's happening there, it's almost a picture, if you go back to verse 32, of a war march. Because you think about the context, in Mark chapter 8, when we began this series, what launched this whole thing off was then Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. He uses a title, a messianic title for himself, and he says, the Son of Man, from Daniel chapter 7. They, they get this idea. The people that are following him grasp the idea that he's claiming to be the Messiah. They're following him as Messiah. But what they expect is, as he's headed towards Jerusalem, is there's going to be a battle. There's going to be a war. And he's going to overthrow Rome. And maybe he's going to overthrow the priestly rulership of the Jews at that time too. Some of them are astonished. They're excited about this battle. Some of them are afraid. Maybe because they're going to lose their lives. Perhaps some of them are afraid. He hasn't told them the details when it says they're afraid. I Man, it's just because they know they don't have control and they don't know exactly what's going to happen or how this is all going to work out. And isn't that sometimes the scariest thing is just not knowing and not having control? I, was, I read an article recently uh, from the New York Times a few weeks ago. It came out and it was about the elevator buttons. Have you ever been in an elevator before and the door's just not closing and there's that little button that has the two arrows that point in and you feel like if I just push this button more than once probably, <laughs> that the doors will close faster. And what this New York Times article said was that those buttons don't work. Unless you're in a really old building that hasn't disabled that, there was an act that happened in 1990, okay, so think about how long ago that was, 26 years ago. So any building's been built since then, any elevators been repaired since then, that's been deactivated, and it doesn't work, but people still press it, and I want to confess something to you. I read the article a few days later, was in an elevator, and I still pressed the button, because we like the illusion of control. The New York Times went on and they told different, different scenarios. They were talking about in New York City, I think it was like 3,000 and some crosswalks where you have to push the button to let the, you know, let the person walk across. I don't know if you've been to New York, but people, that doesn't, they don't watch that anyways. But there's, there's little buttons there. They said only about 100 of them actually work in that city. Talked about employers and they did surveys of different employers who will put thermostats in the offices that don't actually do anything, but they said they make the employees feel better. They think they have some control over how warm and how cool it is in the office. It's called the placebo effect, if you've never heard that. They're not actually, it's, a, it's an illusion of control. And these people, they don't have control, but here's the good news. They know the one who does. And Jesus is about to show them with what he tells them. 
hey, none of this is an accident. And he talks about his own suffering, and he came to suffer. And the suffering was part of the plan, down to the fact that he's going to be spit upon, that he's going to be mocked, that he will be flogged, that he will be murdered. No one takes his life. He's laying it down. And he's showing them that as bad as this looks, he's still in control. I know some of you are going through suffering right now. Some of it might be because of your faith, because of the stand that you've taken. Some of you, prolonged joblessness, perhaps, is, is, is your suffering. I've had several people this week uh, share with me about loved ones that were diagnosed with cancer. I had various things happen, obviously, in the lives of folks. People lose babies. Marriages struggle. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. Think about the hundreds of people that go to our church. All the things that are happening. People that are sitting next to you right now. You can't control all the details of what's going to happen next. Now, you're responsible for your decisions. You are accountable for those things. But God is sovereign over all that stuff. Like we sang in the song, in the good times and the bad, he is on his throne. He is in control. And he tells, he's showing that to these folks as they're following here. He's like, hey, you're about to see something. I want you to know. And he doesn't tell us like he often, he tells that, you know, Peter in John chapter 21. He says, here's how you're going to die. He doesn't oftentimes tell us those things, but he's in control of those things and he's using those things and it's going to happen. And it's like these guys, they don't even get it. All they're thinking about is glory. And so then James and John, they come to him and they ask this question. What do you, what, what, will you do whatever we want you to do? It's a horrible question. I told you a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I think it was, I said, some teachers have told you there's no such thing as a bad question. Those teachers lied to you. There is such thing as a bad question. Sinful hearts ask bad questions. And you think about this question. If, if I'm talking to you after the church today, we're out in the lobby, we're out in the parking lot, wherever, and we're chit-chatting, and some of your parents and your kid walks up to you and says, Dad, will you do whatever I ask you to do? The only thing I'm thinking is, is this guy a fool? <laughs> Is there a possibility? He says, yes, that's a bad question. If you go to Crabtree today and some stranger walks up to you and says, do whatever I ask you to do, you're like going, do you have a gun? Like, what do you, no one says that. It's a terrible. If you don't think it's a bad question, I challenge you, go to a bank on Monday. Yo, do whatever I ask you. See what happens to you. And don't say my pastor told you to do that. It's just it's a bad question. They come to Jesus and say, you do whatever we want you to do. I mean, we know that you can do the impossible. You just said it when you were talking about the rich guy in last week's passage. He can't get to heaven. Rich people can't get to heaven, but you do the impossible. What's impossible with man is possible with God. You can do the impossible. Here, we, want, we want the guy who can do the impossible to do something for us. But notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He asks a question, and the question is going to become relevant next week in next week's passage because he asks this, another guy who has a different heart condition than James and John the same exact question. If God asked you this question today, he'd give hundreds of different answers from each one of us here today. What do you want me to do for you? And how would you answer that question? What do you want God to do for you? And what James and John are going to ask for here is for their own glory, for power, and for position. It's going to be a different request next week. They say, we want to be able to sit at your side, one on the right, one on the left. And Jesus will give you the freedom to decide who's number two and who's number three. But, but we want to be number two and number three. And what's really funny, if you go and read it on your own, in Matthew chapter 20, I think it's even funnier when Matthew records it because he gives us more details. He says that they actually sent their mom to ask this question. <laughs> like, that blows my mind. These are grown men. I mean, who here would send their mom to go ask for a, their boss for a raise? Anybody do that? Don't, don't tell me. Please, don't tell me. Did you ever, do you play on sports? Do you ever ask the coach, hey, Mom, will you go tell the coach to give me the ball more? Please don't admit that. But that's what they're doing. Say, they could go to Jesus, tell him how awesome we are. He picked, I mean, we're one of the three and just cut Peter out of this deal. And, and Jesus says, 
you don't know what you're asking. You don't even realize what you're saying. It's like, like if God, when we asked to be great, would say to us, you don't realize what you're actually asking. You're using that word and it doesn't mean what you think it means. See, to be great means you're going to suffer. And so he says to him, can you drink the cup? And the word cup there, it's a metaphor. In this case, in this context, it's a metaphor for divine wrath. Now, in the Old Testament, it's interesting. It can be a metaphor for joy and for celebration. Oftentimes, wine is associated with joy and celebration in the Old Testament. But more often, it's actually associated with wrath and judgment. And Jesus just talking about his death and what he's going to say after this, it's clear that the context here, he's actually talking about divine judgment and divine wrath. Now, many of you, most of you here are in a small group. If you go to your small group study or if you even have your app right now, you can look up. I put a whole bunch of verses so you know I'm not just making that stuff up. When you go to the study, there are a bunch of Old Testament verses that show that the cup talks about wrath. I'll share one of them with you today. It's in Isaiah in chapter 51. When the prophet Isaiah says to his people, they've been, been experiencing judgment, awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You've drunk the cup from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. Later, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus uses the cup analogy again. Some of you are familiar with it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, verses 35 and 36. Going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell to the ground, prayed. If possible, the hour might pass from him. And here's his prayer. Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Take the cross from me. If there's any other way, take the cross, take this cup, this suffering away from me. But there's not another way. There's only one way. It's the cup of his wrath. And he uses baptism. He says baptism. He's using two illustrations, two metaphors to say the same thing. He's double illustrating here. And the word baptism, it's not about ceremonial baptism. This isn't about when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The word baptism means to be immersed. And some of you, your background is sprinkling. I'm not even here to argue about modes of baptism today. I'm just saying the word baptism means to be dipped. It means to be dunked, to be immersed. And it's a metaphor here for overwhelming calamity. And what happens for Jesus I heard one commentator said it like this, Jesus is not sprinkled with calamity. He is immersed in calamity. He's overwhelmed with the cross. It's intense suffering. And he's saying to these these guys, can you do this? And they say, we can. Now, they might mean, there may be some genuineness as they're on this march to Jerusalem and and they've heard Jesus say that he's going to die and he's going to rise from it. There may be a level of faith here and they're saying, we're willing to die with you. But Jesus is saying, you don't understand what all this means. You don't get the suffering that I'm talking about. And some of you are going through suffering. And it's various different things. In various different ways. Sometimes it's small. Sometimes it's persecution that people just don't want to be your friend now because you shared the gospel with them. And some people treat you like, hey, you're that religious person. And some of you, it's outright denial from your family. And some of you, it's the difficulties of this life that things happen. There's broken. There's stuff that's happening that is not. We don't battle against flesh and blood. There are spiritual battles that are waging war for our souls. And God uses all that. He doesn't just see it. He's not just in control over it. He uses all of it. He uses it so you can have fellowship with Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6. We keep going to Philippians in this series. Philippians chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 6 that Paul talks about. Or no, it's verse 10. He says, I want to fellowship in your suffering. We, we connect with Jesus who suffered so much that we connect when we suffer because we know our Savior more what it was like to suffer. And he used it to refine us, to make us more like Jesus. And he uses it not just in our lives, but he uses it for the sake of other people that we come into contact with. The Apostle Paul who said that in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 is the same one who says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he had more than he could handle, more than he could bear in this life. He despaired of life itself, but he tells us why 
In 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, I'll read you some of the verses, verses 3 through 6. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. Remember our context is he's suffering so bad he wants to die. Some of us, when we suffer, we, we get mad at God. He doesn't give us what we want. We're angry with him. He says, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, in all of our troubles, every kind of trouble, so that we can comfort those. Here's why. It's not just for us. So we can then use it in the lives of other people so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You can't do that if you don't experience trouble. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, we get to know Christ more. He's talking about it here. So also, through Christ, our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort, he says to these Corinthians, and salvation. So you can see the way that we suffer. And we suffer differently. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance, the same sufferings that we suffer. So some of you, you know what it's like to be in a marriage that struggles, and then you meet someone else. You know what it's like to lose a baby, and then you meet someone. You know what it's like to either be diagnosed with cancer, to have someone diagnosed with cancer. We go through these things. We know what it's like to lose a job because of our faith. We know what it's like to go an extended period without our job. And then, then God uses that so you can impact other people. I was reading a story with uh, my daughters this week. I mentioned before the Voice of Martyrs magazine. And I just pulled it out at dinner. Great dinner time reading, by the way. I pulled it out at dinner, and we were kind of wrapping up, and... And I said to the girls, I said, you, can, you get to vote who you want and what story you want to hear. And this magazine had like three or four of them in it this time. And they were, it was all children in this one. And I said, eight-year-old or 13-year-old? And they voted, not unanimously, because nothing's unanimous in our family. And they voted for the eight-year-old. I said, all right. And it was Nanpak was his name. It's N-A-N-K-P-A-K. Was how you, I don't know how to pronounce that, but a Nanpak sounds about right. I think the K is silent in the middle because I can't pronounce it. So the eight-year-old Nanpak was in Nigeria. That's where he was at, being persecuted uh, by Islamic rioters. His dad was a pastor. They knew that his dad was a pastor. They had actually killed his dad the day before. And the eight-year-old was known in the village, obviously, as being the pastor's kid. And the way the story picks up is he's looking at his mom who's lying on the ground. She's been shot and wounded. She's bleeding. There's an Islamic rioter coming towards them. He's got a machete. Uh, I won't tell you all the details, but he comes and attacks them to kill them, leaves them for dead. Him? His brother, sister, and mom. What he doesn't realize is that Nampak is not actually dead. He's unconscious. And when he wakes up as an eight-year-old who's been beaten with his machete, he's been shot, he runs through the bush to a friend's house, gets medical treatment. His mother's dead, his brother's dead, his sister's dead, his dad died the day before. And then uh, moves in with his uncle, eventually voice of martyrs, hears about him, gets him into a boarding school. This was 10 years ago. Now he hopes to become a doctor as an 18-year-old. He's in training to be a doctor. Here's what got me about the story. He doesn't want to come to the United States and be a doctor. Because when, I, when we're, I'm reading the story, the kids are asking questions while it's happening. Can this happen here? You know, somebody going to come with a machete? We're pastor's kids. Like, what's going to happen? So I said, you know, it could happen here. It's probably not going to happen today. But it's not impossible this would happen. But it is happening around the world, I said. And we got to this, this kid, Nanpak, eight years old, has this experience at 18. He says, I want to be a doctor so that I can help other persecuted Christians. He says, there's a reason I survived and none of the rest of my family survived. And he misses his dad. And he wasn't making it all rosy. He, but he said, but I want to help these other people to go through these experiences. The suffering that he's experienced, he wants to show them the comfort that he's experienced in that suffering so he can serve other people in that suffering. God uses our suffering. And it's not just about you. Use it for the sake of others. 
Because greatness, it requires suffering, but it also requires service. And that's what we see in the next part of this passage, that greatness, it requires suffering, but greatness also requires service. We don't know how, but somehow the other ten disciples hear about this interaction that James and John and apparently their mom have with Jesus. When they find out about it, they're ticked. Look at it, verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant. That's the Bible's way of saying ticked. When the ten heard about it, they became indignant with James and John. But it's not a righteous indignation. They're not angry like, guys, Jesus just predicted his death. He said he's going to be spit on, they're going to mock him, they're going to fog him, and you're talking about what position you get? They're mad because they wish they asked the same question. And we know that because Jesus doesn't rebuke just James and John and what he says next. He teaches the twelve. He teaches the twelve a lesson he's already said. He teaches the 12 something that last time he grabbed a child and brought him in. But look at what he does here in verse 42. He uses an analogy. Jesus called them together and said, I know what you think of when you think of greatness. And I'm going to tell you that's not what God thinks of. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And what Jesus does next, it's interesting. He doesn't command them to cut it out. He doesn't command them to lead differently. He just states a fact. You may have seen leadership like this, and you might even, some of us, might have seen leadership, Christian leadership that's heavy-handed leadership like this. You think, God doesn't recognize that. As le- that's not even leadership. Not so with you. He just states it. Instead, here's what, here's what it looks like in the kingdom. Whoever wants to become great, and that's fine. It's fine if you want to become great. We talked about that when we were in Mark chapter 9. You must. This is not an option. This is not a leadership tip. You must They must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, that's even better than being great. Being great is like you're on the list. Being first must be slave of all. There's two different words that are used there for servant and for slave. Servant is somebody who waits tables. It's like like your job. And you help people out and you have a lowly task, but you're doing your job. A slave, the Greek word doulos, you have no rights You actually belong to someone else. They are your master, and your whole purpose in your life is to do what's best for them. You want to be first? You be a slave. You want to be great? Be a servant. And then Jesus gives himself as an example, and he says, for even the Son of Man, and he's used that title before when he was talking about his death, the Son of Man. It refers to Daniel chapter 7. It's a messianic title. And he says, even I I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And so Jesus is telling, he tells them, listen, I'm not saying this so that you guys will serve me. He's their leader. He's talking about, the, you know, their image of, he used the analogy of the, the Gentiles lorded over them. Who do they think of? If they, thinking of the Bible. They think of guys like Pharaoh. Pharaoh rules, he leads, everybody else serves him. That's what most people think of leadership. That's what most people think of greatness. A bunch of people do what you want them to do. You've done, you've paid your dues, you've worked hard, now you get the blessing of everybody else working for you. And Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not how it is in the kingdom. Some of them might think of the ancient Near Eastern rulers. Some of the Greek rulers, they even, they, some of the ancient Near Eastern rulers would declare themselves as gods. You have to do what I say, right, if I'm a god. So I'm just going to call myself a god, and I'm going to get to be the ruler, and I get to decide if you don't like it, I'll tax you or kill you or something like that. Think about the Romans. You think about the Roman rulers that are there then, and historically we know there's the Pax Romana, which is known as the Peace of Rome. However, we know how they got that, by killing people, crucifying people on the street, brutally and just heavy-handedly ruling over them. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it is with you. The kind of leadership you're supposed to have in the kingdom is not heavy-handed, not a bullying people into doing what you want them to do. It's 
You serve them in such a way that they want to follow you because you actually make their life better. I was talking with my kids this week. It was a difficult situation we were working through, and I challenged one of my daughters. I said, you can't, you got to lead in this. You can't follow. You can't go with what's going on here. you got to lead. And she was just honest with me. She said, but that's so much harder. And I don't often do it, and she doesn't often do it, and we mess up. But the definition we use at our house uh, of leadership is it's taking the initiative for the sake of others. So you take the initiative, so you, you have to do something. You have to take action for the sake of other people. Sometimes with other people, they don't even want you to take that action. They get mad at you. Look at Moses. Why'd you, why am I leading these people? Like they're mad at him. He's trying to do what's best for them. But you're taking the initiative for the sake of other people. The first place I learned that definition was in a men's ministry I was involved in. We use the curriculum now here at our church. We're wrapping up a couple of the small groups from the volume 33 uh, in the next couple of weeks. We're starting some new ones in January. But what it does in that curriculum is they talk about two Adams in the scripture and how there are different types of leaders and the one failed miserably. It's Adam that we see in the book of Genesis with his wife Eve. There's only two people at the time. He's got a responsibility. He was given, don't eat of this tree. And he's the opposite of taking the initiative for the benefit of others. He's passive. He stands by. He's there present when his wife takes the fruit. Like many men, they'll stand by and let their wife take the lead. She takes the lead, but she didn't have the instruction from the Lord that he was given. Did he pass it on? Somehow, but it's all messed up because she's believing twisted versions of it and she takes the fruit and he just stands by. And then guess what? We all suffer. The New Testament says just as sin into the world through one man. We all sin because of what happened in the garden, because one guy blew it, because he didn't lead. But the New Testament tells us about another Adam, Jesus Christ, who did take the initiative. He had no sin. He came here. For why? For the sake of others, for the benefit of others. He's taking the initiative for the benefit of us. He gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. And so does that describe you? You take the initiative for the benefit of others. And we talked about marriage in this series so far. Jesus talked about it. Do you take the initiative for the benefit of your spouse? Or do you do what you think is going to make your life better? Do you take the initiative for the sake of your neighbor? You mean your neighbor, you and your neighbor are arguing about, you know, who mows that strip in between your yard? And do you, just, do you take the initiative for the sake of your neighbor? Or do you take the initiative for the sake of your kids? I was thinking about kids in the first service, and I felt guilty because I make my kids mow the lawn now. But anyway, maybe it's for their own good. They're learning discipline, right? I'll rationalize it. No, but do it with my kids... Am I doing what's best for me with my kids? Or am I taking initiative in their lives so that they can end up growing independent from me and completely dependent upon God? And with your coworkers and with your friends and Thanksgiving's coming with your in-laws, do you take the initiative for the sake of the people that God brings across your path so that you can serve those people? And what does it look like for you individually? You think about the life of Jesus. Who do you serve? He served the people that God brought before him. You think about him going through the crowd and he's saying no to a whole bunch of people. There's people grabbing hold of him. There's people trying to get by. And he's, he's focused. And then, but there's this one woman who grabs his robe. She's got a bleeding issue and he stops for her. It's like he serves the people that God lays on his heart and he puts before him. He's teaching. There's a whole room of people. He's giving them all the truth. But there's this one guy who comes through the ceiling and he, heal, he doesn't heal every person, but he heals this guy. And then he dies, but he dies for the many. He dies for all of us. He dies for the world. He, did, he does it for our best interest. He didn't die for his own interest. He died for the joy set before him, which is you having fellowship with his father, that you could be one with each other, that as he and the father are one, so that the world, so the rest of the world would know. It's service. So do you do that? And what does it look like? And who does God bring across your path that he wants you to serve? 
Because we can talk about, yeah, we should, I should be serving more. Maybe I should you know, give an hour to whatever, Raleigh Rescue Mission or serve at the church. Is your life, do you, you have eyes on to look around and see who's God bringing before me that he wants me to lay my life down and take the initiative for their sake, for their benefit? And what does it look like, not just for us individually, but think about this as a church. What does it look like for us as a church? What does it look like for us to be great as a church? And it's not just about the music getting better and the teaching getting better and the children's ministry getting better and us running programs. I mean, what would it look like for us to be the kind of church that if we stopped existing, the city would say, my life's not as good. That, that us being here actually makes a difference in our city. And we do some stuff. I mean, we do Southford serves and baby bottle drives and dollar offerings. But I honestly don't think the key to that happening, that us be a great church where the city actually would miss us if we weren't here. I don't think the key is a program. I think the key is a whole bunch of individuals that start having this mentality of, I, w- I want to be great. And so that means I need to serve. I become a servant. And maybe you start off as a servant. And then maybe you, I want to be the best. I'll be a slave. I don't even, I will lay my life down. I would not just give my money, not just my time. I give my life for the sake of others. What does it look like? I was reading a a little book um, C.J. Mahaney has. You can read it really quick. It's a great book to buy just as a gift for somebody even. It's called Humility. And the subtitle is True Greatness. And he talks about what it looks like. And he says this. And he starts talking about people in his church. He says, it's Bryce. The godly teenage son who honors his parents and cares for his younger siblings, including his brother Eric, who suffers from autism. These aren't grandiose things, by the way. And I, just, I wonder if you identify with some of these things. So it's true greatness. It's Teresa, a single woman with an infectious laugh who cheerfully serves numerous families in our church. It's Eric, the successful businessman who volunteers each Sunday at our church parking cars. It's Dick, the single man and postal worker who lived a simple life so he could give generously to families who wanted to adopt children. So he's not doing it for himself. He's forsaking stuff for himself for the sake of others. He says, it's my daughter, Kristen, the pastor Mahaney says this, who works tirelessly in her home to care for her husband, Brian, and their three small boys. It's Bernie and Pearl, the couple in their 80s who, despite severe health issues, poured their lives, their hearts and lives into the small group that Bernie led. And there's other examples in the book if you want to check it out, but it's, it's people like you and like me that decide who are the people that God brings before our path, kind of like the story of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus said, what does, it look, what does it look like to love God with all your heart? What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Who's my neighbor? And he tells a story. There's this person that's brought across your path, and you don't serve every person, that you can, but God brings people across your path, and do you have eyes to see those people and a heart that says, I'll take the initiative for the sake of that person. Not what you get. Sometimes people talk to you about serving. They're like, you feel so good when you serve. That's self-centered service. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he felt so good about what he did for all of us. He laid his life down for us. He served. Greatness requires service. It requires suffering, but it requires something else we see in the last verse, in verse 45. It requires generous giving, sacrificial giving. That's what Jesus did in verse 45. For even the Son of Man, and there's that title. We saw it back earlier in the passage when he was talking about his death. Verse 33 here he says it again. It's an allusion to a passage in Daniel chapter 7. I've mentioned that in this message. I've mentioned it before in the book of Mark. It refers to himself as the son of man. Daniel chapter 7. You should go read it on your own. It talks about the Lord coming before the ancient of days. That's God the Father. And he comes on a cloud and he receives glory and honor and power and all authority. And then he's given a kingdom that will never end, an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. And all the nations are going to worship him. 
So when I say son of man, think about that. Even, interesting word, even, even the one who comes on the cloud to the ancient of days and receives all glory and honor and power and authority and everlasting kingdom. You'd think he comes to be worshipped. All nations are going to worship him. Even he did not come, he existed before this moment, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so he's not saying to the disciples here, hey, I'm telling you this stuff so you'll serve me. He's saying, I came to serve you by giving my life. Now, it's not what we do, our servants of Jesus Christ, different idea there in our submission that he's Lord, but he actually serves us. And to give his life, and how does he do it? Giving. He does it by giving, and he gives the most generous ransom. Interesting word for many. Ransom's an interesting word because we don't usually use that word. It's usually associated with kidnapping. If you Google ransom stories, which I did this week, you'll see all kinds of stories of people that were kidnapped, and you'll see the you know, most famous people that were kidnapped. You'll see stories about the, the biggest debts that were paid. I thought it was really interesting that there were stories of people that paid millions of dollars. There was one guy who was kidnapped twice. I want to keep an eye on that, buddy. Paid hundreds of millions of dollars to get him. But the greatest ransoms, they don't mention what Jesus did. There's no one that's paid a greater ransom than what Jesus did. He is God and he dies for us. He gives his life. No one takes his life. Notice he gives his life. He's mentioned, this is how it's going to happen. This is why I'm here. I'm focused to go towards Jerusalem. I'm laying my life down. It's a gen- and we follow a generous Savior. And we want to be a great church. Let's look at the early church and what they did. They were, people were being saved daily in the church. God's spirit was moving, breaking addictions. People, God was doing amazing stuff. You read the book of Acts. And you know one of the things that marked them? Oh, they rejoiced in their suffering. They laid their lives down for others, and they were generous. You read in Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Doesn't mean everybody had the same. It wasn't socialism. It was voluntary. Somebody has a need, we're going to help meet that need. Acts chapter 4 and verse 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. In that context, what it's been talking about is the apostles distribute in the church as there's need. And so he's just saying, here, I've, this is what I've got, use it. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which means Dorcas. And what you see in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 4, I'll read you one from Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. It wasn't that the church had this big benevolence program. It was individuals in the church lived generous lives. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. So we've got Dorcas, Cornelius, Barnabas. These are different individuals. A centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those who... We're in need and prayed to God regularly. Acts chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. It wasn't the disciples weren't just collecting money. The disciples each, according to his own ability, they were given out of their own money too, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. You can keep going on. The great church is a generous church. And I think about us as a church. I'm not to beat you up. We're not about to start a fundraising program. Last week, we did a special offering for Orphan Sunday. And you guys gave, in addition to your regular tithes and offering that you drop in the box and give online, just in some baskets we had out there to make a big deal about it. For an orphanage in Panama that on this side of eternity, the majority of you will never see, you gave over $4,000 for that. That was awesome. The week before that, hey, you can give the Lord a hand for that. You put that with the week before that, we did a race, and some of you own businesses, and you sponsored that, and some of you ran in that race, and it was to raise money for orphan care, and all the money gets given away for that. Between the two weekends, it was over $10,000 you guys gave just for orphan care last week. That's generous. That's awesome. 
But one of the privileges I had, there was a lady here last week. We were doing Orphan Sunday, and she was, uh, she's one of the leaders. It's an international ministry, and she was at our church last week just visiting, seeing how it went here. And we were talking afterwards, and she told me a story of how Orphan Sunday started, which I didn't know until last week. And I thought, now that's a story of generosity. It's awesome that we gave away thousands of dollars. That's great. But what ended up happening is there was a church in Zambia that weren't intending to start some you know, nationwide or international ministry of Orphan Sunday, but there was a pastor at this church, small church. She didn't say how many people. It was like one little room and the kids and everybody's in there together and they're running around. And he looked around at his church. There's orphans at our church. They don't even have shoes. And so he decided one Sunday they were going to have a service where they were going to take action. He's going to be a voice for these orphans and for the widows in their church. And he preached a message and he said, hey, when Jesus is doing ministry, he's not just using words. It's not fake ministry. They're not fake promises. He's doing deeds. And he said, what are we going to do? And he brought the widows and the orphans in their church up forward, had them stand there, and then told everybody, he, God is a husband to the widows. He is a father to the fatherless. Some of these kids don't even have shoes. We're going to have an offering. The way they do their offering there is they have a basket up in the front and they start playing music and you get to dance because you want to be a joyful giver, right? So they start dancing down in the front. If we did this, some of you would be like, y'all have lost your mind. We're not doing that. <laughs> I had one person come to me after the first service. I told this story and they said, I went to a church in South Africa one time. They had symbols on their fingers as they were coming up there. I don't know how they gave, but anyway, they were doing their thing and they dropped stuff in the bus- bucket. And The pastor said, I went and watched this online after the woman told me the story after the service. He's sharing his testimony. He said that, People came forward. People actually gave shoes because the kids didn't have shoes. It wasn't a shoe offering. We've done that before to give shoes to people in our city. And there was one woman. She came forward and she dropped some cabbage in there. And he said, I didn't know what to do with the cabbage. So I took the cabbage out. I said, does anyone need this? And a widow and two orphans came up that hadn't eaten in two days. And then the pastor started crying. And he said, I don't, you look at your church. I don't know they hadn't eaten in two days. And he gave them the cabbage. And that's the church. That's what the church is supposed to be like. Generous with one another. And there was a, a white guy in the back from Texas. He was a pastor. And he saw this. I said, that, we need to, we need to, this needs to be everywhere. And he came back to America. And he started sharing the vision. People didn't listen for a while. But now it's become this movement. I was told last week over 82 countries celebrated Orphan Sunday. Thousands of dollars you guys gave. In orphans, in Panama, special needs that you're probably never going to meet. But it all started because some woman like a widow with her two mites comes and gives a head of cabbage. She gives what she, that's generosity. For if I said to you, we need some cabbage, some of you would run over to Harris Teeter, you'd be back with like a box of cabbage. That's not the point. For her, that was the sacrificial gift, and I bet you she has no idea how many lives she's impacted. Because she was being generous. It's impacted your life, and impacted these kids' lives, and impacted 82 countries. I can't even fathom how many people have been impacted. But generosity. I bet she doesn't know that side of the story. But she does know a Savior who gave his life as a ransom for her. Amen. Why a ransom? Why a ran- the word ransom means to be released from a debt, to be released from a payment. And we're in debt to God because of our sin. We're in bondage. Those who sin are slaves to sin. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin, what you earn because of your sin, and we all sin. We told each other we're not perfect. And some of you say, you know, you said that to someone else. But you think about yourself. We're all not perfect. Everyone sinned. That's not a great confession. We all sin. But we get something for that sin, and it's a debt against God that we can't pay. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. How did that gift, how was it possible? Because of his death, because he gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. So we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. We can become slaves to righteousness, which is real freedom down the path to greatness. Have you received greatness is a question today. Have you received the gift that he's offered you? That he was great, but he suffered for you. That he served you. That he gave his life for you.
If not, we'd love for you to receive that today. And we'll have some people praying at the back of the room after the service. You want to talk to them about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. We invite you to do that. But those of you who have received that greatness, do you walk down that path? And I don't want to lose an easy application today of you need to serve more. But, but what if you started thinking about the people? We got our Christmas Eve service coming up. Can I share something with you as, uh, from leadership in our church? People love Christmas Eve services. They want to have a good, nice Christmas Eve service. Almost no one wants to serve at the Christmas Eve service. What if instead of thinking about, hey, you know, that'd be nice that our church is having that service. What if you thought to yourself, this is a gift to the community. How can we bless them? So who are you going to invite that hasn't heard the gospel? God's going to do a miraculous thing there. I'm going to talk way shorter than I ever talk. It's a miracle. But we're going to share the gospel. You're not allowed to come, Steve. Just kidding, brother. But what if we thought, like, how can, maybe I don't normally work on the tech team, but I'm going to run the camera because I want somebody who doesn't come to the service to see this online so they can hear the gospel and trust Christ. I don't normally greet, but I'm normally serving the bridge kids or whatever it is you do. I don't normally work on the parking lot and people, they get mad around Christmas. I don't want to be in the parking lot. But you're, you decide you're going to late because you're, you're giving. It's not about you. It's about them. And what if we lived our lives like that? Not just about a Christmas Eve service, but what if we start, when you go home, who has God placed in your life? He wants you to serve. There's a direct application of this message. But here's the reality. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. But he gives us the power to do it through the Holy Spirit when you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior to do things that are otherworldly, to go down a path of greatness where you, you're, no one wants to suffer. But you can rejoice in your suffering because you know that God's using it for his glory to help you have fellowship with Jesus Christ and ultimately for the sake of other people that you can serve them and maybe lay your life down for them. Maybe your money, maybe your time, maybe your life. What does it look like for you? There are exact people God wants you to serve and exact ways as you walk down the path he has for you that's different than for me. Let's just pray that God empowers us to do it. Father, the kind of greatness that we're talking about, almost inconceivable greatness. But God, I pray that people will believe it because they see it in us. That they would see the greatness that you've laid down in us because you've supernaturally changed us, you've supernaturally empowered us. And God, we need you. We need you to do it. We need you to save us. We need you to change us. We, we don't naturally want to do it. We want other people to serve us. We want to have the positions of authority and power. But God, to know that your kingdom means that that's a position of service, leading is harder. Help us to lay our lives down for the sake of others. Help us to take the initiative for the benefit of other people, for our spouses, for our kids, for our parents, for our siblings, for our in-laws, for our neighbors, for coworkers and bosses and teammates and classmates. And Father, help us to lay our lives down to do what's in their best interests and that you'd use us, use our talents, use our gifts, use the way that you've made us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.